I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it greater under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on November 14th, 2022. Happy Thanksgiving. I was glad to get this episode ready to be released before the holiday, and I hope it is interesting to all of you, and though it highlights some depressing developments in our culture, I do hope it provides some reason to celebrate going into this season of thanks. Thanksgiving, at its core, was a recognition of the value of shared knowledge and learning, where people of different backgrounds helped each other by discussing and sharing ideas and information. Yes, there were atrocities committed by and against Native Americans as our nation was carved out of a basic wilderness and sewn together into the beacon of hope it is today. But those early days, the basis for today's Thanksgiving holiday, may be the clearest evidence that knowledge is indeed power. And it is instilling our young students and young people with such knowledge that we have failed them in recent decades. Reclaiming our educational system and ensuring future generations are exposed to diverse views, not arbitrary diversity of identity, and that they're told our true history, like those of the first Thanksgiving, to know that American or people are good and worth saving, is an important goal and one that should give us hope that when the truth is told, America will again be viewed, this time by her own people, as that shining city on a hill, a beacon of freedom to all. Episode episode 83 It's our children, stupid. In 1992, when then-President George Herbert Walker Bush, who had failed to continue the successful economic policies of his predecessor, Ronald Reagan, was facing Bill Clinton in the presidential election, Clinton campaign strategist James Carville coined the slogan, It's the economy, stupid. For most of modern American politics, the state of the economy has greatly influenced the outcome of elections. Rightfully or wrongfully, if the economy is strong, incumbents are given credit. If the economy is weak, incumbents are blamed. In some elections, those voter positions may have been well-founded. In others, and in other situations, the complexity of economics in our economy could not properly lay the credit or blame at the feet of any one elected official or branch of government. The problem today is that our economy has grown to such a powerhouse, and the economic downturn experienced by a large portion of voters has never been catastrophic that it is the primary focus of many campaigns or of the voters no longer. The results of the 2022 election are proof of that. 
Though potential voters responding to polls certainly appeared in agreement the economy was weaker than when President Biden and his party took control of our political branches and was headed in the wrong direction, other things clearly motivated actual candidate selection. It is not the economy, at least not standing alone, that is the linchpin. It is our way of life. For much of the 20th century, our way of life was determined by the strength of the economy. Little dispute existed about what America stood for, her principles, and her culture. As the focus, however, has changed from whether the American dream can be a reality for us financially to what we want to be culturally, the left has been far ahead of the right in defining a new vision. As the Industrial Revolution, both world wars, the socialist policies of FDR, and the idyllic canvas of the 1950s all began to fade into our history, the massive generation of baby boomers, born in the war and post-war years, began to rebel against the traditions of the United States. Plagued by the non-traditional military conflicts in Korea and Vietnam, these young people, despite their relative financial security, could not accept their parents' and grandparents' ways of life. As I read recently about the midterms, and I'm paraphrasing here, young voters in history have often been convinced that older generations are the enemy, even when those older generations are made up of, a, made up of their own parents. They do not realize they are voting directly against them. When they vote against the ideals and positions of these older generations, they do not see themselves as casting their own parents as the enemy, at least not always. But in the 1960s, authority and maturity were undoubtedly the enemy. The free love, free drug era, in which many were sold a utopian vision that included no personal responsibility, no consequences for your actions, and no need to abide by societal rules and norms, was just the opening to more authoritarian members of our nation and their need to begin building what truly is the big lie. It's not the irregularity in a single election or any false claims that normal political disagreements are threats to democracy. The real big lie is that bigger government, more regulation, and more socialism are more virtuous than America has ever been. But how is it that post-baby boomer generations, particularly those born around and after this millennium, now seem convinced that the European settlers of our continent, our English founders, and our current systems are all the relic of some discriminatory evil instituted to oppress, not to free? They believe it because that's what they have been taught. The role the breakdown of the traditional family has played in opening the, opening the door to this big lie, this orchestrated indoctrination, cannot be overlooked. Even for those who believe a traditional family, meaning a married mother and father, is not necessary or preferred for the good of any children, it still cannot be ignored that the majority of our family structures and patterns no longer include time spent at the dinner table with parents, clear bases for morality such as religious observance, time spent as family units on vacations or away from constant entertainment, and where parents, both of their own inaction and by the actions of those controlling our educational institutions pushing them out, no longer regularly play an active role in school activities and in what their children are being taught, this shift cannot be overlooked and should not be viewed as positive, but it is what has contributed to this view of America among younger generations. More and more young people are not getting information about the world from their homes and close communities. So when young Americans cannot count on their parents, siblings, other family members, neighborhoods, and other communities to learn the way of the world, where do they get this information? Who are they left to turn to as the authority figures in their lives? Celebrities and teachers. Karl Marx did not hide his view that the family is the enemy of Marxism. 
viewed by Marx as merely a capitalist-created concept intended to keep wealth within families, Marx regularly pushed for a return to tribal groups, all equal in their assets and overall well-being. Overall well-being. In addition, where there are intact family units, the collective must work harder to win over the hearts and minds of individual family members to take positions that are counter to what is best for that actual family. It is here for both purposes of control of our children's minds and to destroy the role of men in American families to make everyone more dependent on their government that the left has made great inroads all while we sat by and watched. In his 1964 book, A Sociology of Education, author and professor of, among other things, sociology and education, Wilbur Brookover, characterizes the role of education in revolutionary efforts by pointing out that, quote, an examination of the role of education in the revolutionary processes in Hitlerian Germany and Soviet Russia demonstrates that a new controlling group can use the educational system to advantage to bringing about the changes it desires. This illustrates the effectiveness of the educational system in indoctrinating the youth with a desire for the type of society wanted by those in control, end quote. Where once solid families stood as a stopgate to measures fully to teach students ideas like that America is bad or continues to be discriminatory, if the family deteriorates, the student is left with fewer authority figures, and those most prominent in many of their lives are their teachers. There are no counter-opinions. There are no counterbalances to what they're being told in our classrooms. In addition, where even two-parent families became dual-income families, parents had less time to monitor what their children were being taught, assuming the professional educators were teaching children basic mental skills and not educating them that the way of life their parents lived was to be abhorred. Indeed, in the early years of our republic, it was in the home, not in public schools, that our youth got their educations. It's not a prerequisite to a literate populace that education be provided as a government-controlled public benefit. Indeed, true literacy rates were arguably higher without such government intrusion, and that may be especially true today, where even defining the word literacy itself is a challenge, where words are being given different meanings depending on the internal, subjective meaning of the speaker or writer. No matter the state of our educational system, if families no longer pass on their own shared history and values, no longer have discussions around the dinner table that can expose children to different beliefs from those espoused by their teachers, we can expect that complete indoctrination will continue to become the result. Other than from their teachers, students are left to get any other news and information from their friends and from sources that encourage hiding in a single opinion bubble, as young people are not as adept or comfortable with intellectual challenge. So where the internet offers all kinds of good and bad information, some valid, some not, this wealth of information is not making our children more critical in their thinking, but less. They can turn to just those who agree with them. Social media overwhelmingly wins when children are asked where they get their news. It is the top source for many. In terms of who they trust, our kids trust their family, understanding not all of them have stable homes, and their teachers. And it's that trust in teachers as presenting them with facts, not opinion, that colors how they view the other information they see online and elsewhere. Of course, with the breakdown of many families and the presence of bias in teaching in our news media, is it any wonder that younger Americans are attracted to any, quote, news that confirms their pre-existing beliefs, rather than that challenges them? And let's be honest, that's becoming true for more of us in today's world. So if they trust teachers, if they regularly get information from teachers and they are less able to rely on traditional families, religious, and other community structures to add to their learning process, it becomes even more important what their schools are actually teaching them. 
number of our states have adopted a school curriculum proposed by an organization known as Pollyanna. The organization describes itself this way. Its mission statement is as follows. Pollyanna advances systemic change by developing stronger communities. And in defining its strategy, it explains this on its website, pollyannainc.org. Pollyanna works with academic and other institutions to achieve their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Through its unique conference models, discussion platforms, and racial literacy curricula, Pollyanna increases cultural competence. But what is this racial literacy curricula? Again, from the organization's own website. When equipped with the knowledge, tools, and skills of racial literacy, we believe today's students will shape a more racially just and equitable world. This belief is most profoundly reflected in our K-12 racial literacy curriculum. The site goes on. In our curriculum, students are presented with opportunities to examine and explore fundamental values related to identity, community, and justice. Additionally, the curriculum ensures that students develop concrete academic and leadership skills that result in a more robust vision of social responsibility and global citizenship. Without a sincere effort to understand the historical roots and current problems caused by race and racism, we will continue to passively accept this status quo. Helping students become racially literate is one of the best solutions to these persistent problems. Of course, the actual curriculum is not publicly posted on the website anywhere I could find. You must submit your information and position with a school to receive it. But from what has been reported, this racial literacy pertains solely to some racial minorities and not to the history of other episodes of racism and discrimination. The website does, however, list some of the schools with which the organization is working. The listed schools include some from California, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey, Louisiana, Hawaii, Virginia, Illinois, Maryland, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Vermont, Pennsylvania, Washington, Georgia, Missouri, Ohio, and at least one school in, even in Florida. Some of these schools are private institutions, and some appear to be public. And Pollyanna is just one of many organizations, or even actual school districts and government offices, intent on teaching only one view of America and only one view of society, one defined by race, and one in which the United States is not unique or different, but sullied and evil, a system in need of change. For further proof that those in charge of many of our educational institutions seek to train social justice warriors and not well-educated students, we need look no further than Jefferson Elementary School District in California. Though it should be no shock a California school system is involved in this type of indoctrination, the focus on making students not just informed of a single view, but active in societal issues only to support that view is highlighted in the curriculum that was adopted there. The brainchild of San Francisco State University professor and co-director of a group called Community Responsive Education, this ethnic-focused curriculum was the result of a state mandate that school districts in California include, quote, ethnic studies in their teachings, even to those students as young as eight. Taught in four units entitled Self, Systems, Social Movements, and Solidarity, the classes are intended to, quote, eliminate racism and other forms of oppression through creating, learning, listening, uncovering, and sharing of his, her stories, experiences, and current conditions of those who have been racially marginalized, underrepresented, and or silenced, end quote. But who are these groups? If done purely by statistics, in many professions, industries, and offices of power, 
one racial group may be underrepresented in one area and overrepresented in another. Surely the supporters of these concepts do not want us all simply assigned at birth or reassigned when we seek to change our identities to certain life paths simply to ensure accurate statistical representation regardless of want, skill, or proficiency. Or is that exactly what they want? As part of what this curriculum deems enduring understandings that all students must learn is included these three purported concepts. I simply cannot refer to them as facts. Number one, systems are changeable and can be responsive to changes in society. Systems were created by people and can therefore be changed by people. I suppose I could agree with that one. Number two, white supremacy is a historically based unfair system against people of color for the purpose of maintaining a system of wealth, power, and privilege that benefits white people. Three, institutional racism is the way in which white supremacy continues to oppress non-white people. And what happens when young students who have been shown study after study, have been shown in study after study, at least until the adoption of curricula like this one, not to see each other by race or gender, but are now taught those characteristics are the ones that define whether they are oppressed or the oppressor? What happens to them? How do they see the world? Of course, and sadly, it's not just in teaching our young people that America and the entire West is systemically racist, that our schools have been set on miseducating them. It goes far beyond just this pet issue of the left. And when these activist educators insert classes on racial equity, climate change, identity, and the like, what is left out are basic life skills and knowledge needed for global competitiveness, especially when it comes to math and science. All while our children are not being taught basic skills and are instead being told that there's only one right and just one way to view the world, they are also not expected even to attend class if there's something deemed more worthy of their time in this social justice mission. School systems, for example, regularly excuse student absences for those who attend protests or rallies related to climate change, reproductive rights, and anti-capitalism movements. These same schools do not appear to provide for such excused absences for students who want to rally, protest, or work for non-approved issues or positions. There is a changing tide coming our way if we don't block it. Some school districts and school boards, and most importantly parents, are fighting back. Having gotten away with so much for so long, the left became too pompous and too sure of its place in education, and it started revealing some of its true motives. In May of last year, Texas voters, aware of those motives in the Carroll Independent School District in Dallas, pushed back and voted out those members seeking to impose critical race theory on their children. And state leaders in places like Florida and Virginia are taking strong stances against the left's inappropriate insistence on early childhood exposure to issues like transgenderism. Plenty of educators and educational systems are trying to do the right thing, but sometimes the biases come more cloaked than these extreme examples. So it's up to parents and others in the community to hold our schools accountable to weeding out bias and focusing on teaching our students how to think and how to accept differences of thought, not what to think. For that is the most valuable of diversity. Hopefully, the importance of elections for your state Department of Education and school boards is becoming more, more clear than ever. The warnings have been being made by some in the conservative movement for decades. To be fair, from time to time, those on the right have spoken out about atrocities in education, including conservative activist Mary Allen's attempts to end efforts in Pasadena, California in the 1950s to thwart one of the fathers of progressive education, John Dewey's socialist curriculum. Dewey was in favor of teaching students the effectiveness and need of group activism, 
most notably by teaching, that a new social order was necessary and that socialist revolution was the only way to fix the current state of affairs. Not much has changed with the left's agenda when it comes to education, but the average voter and the average politician appear never to have focused long on this issue of education until now. And though the renewed focus on local school board elections not only returned greater results for Republicans than some of the larger races that were nations, the nation's attention, it should also open the door to the next layer of education and the way it's attempted to indoctrinate our children as being a focus that rather than teaching young adults what to think, we now need to focus on curricula that give them the power of critical thought. It is most shocking when elementary and junior and senior high school curricula are full of unprovable social theories being taught as the only one truth. But our institutions of higher learning go even further. What should be a bastion of diversity of thought is a hotbed of cancel culture, where those students and even professors with less popular views are not only uncomfortable sharing their thoughts, but are often disciplined or worse when it's revealed they have not adopted the accepted groupthink position. Our colleges and universities still in large part purport to teach math, science, history, English, foreign languages, and the like. But what they also offer is more and more encouragement and even instruction on joining the left's social and political movements. The University of Oregon has a professor, Sarah Stapleton, described as an assistant professor in the Education Studies Department and an affiliate faculty member with the Environmental Studies and Food Studies programs. She offers a class entitled Equal Opportunity, Teaching for Climate Activism. When asked why offer this course in activism, Stapleton provided this revealing explanation. We know from environmental education research that knowledge is not enough to inspire people to act sustainably. My own research has shown that asking students to engage in environmental action helps young people see themselves as environmental actors, furthering environmental identity. And when it comes to basic courses on civics, American history, or politics in our American colleges and universities, more time is often spent on how to organize political movements than in teaching students to understand our political system in the first place. I suppose this trend should come as no shock, as these students grew up seeing as a legitimate stepping stone to the office of U.S. President Barack Obama's claim to have been a community organizer prior to holding political office. Though these types of courses may not make up the majority of classes offered, or at least not openly so, at these institutions, as they eschew required curricula in exchange for students being able to choose whatever courses interest them, more students are able to graduate with no course in basic civics, but with a class like the University of Colorado Boulder's class entitled Civic Engagement, Democracy as a Tool for Social Change. And simply reviewing college course catalogs to identify clearly biased progressive classes does not take account of the leftist tendencies of a large majority of professors at these institutions, who are reportedly regularly teaching seemingly unbiased traditional courses, but in a way intended to instruct students that only their view of history is correct, and any other view is to be opposed due to one's stupidity or bias. Of course, it should be no shock that the professors of today, who often were the protesting students of the 1960s, take pride in teaching students not how our political systems work, but instead how to protest, demonstrate, and rally in order to get what they want from them. In addition, now that campuses regularly censor speech, be it by students, teachers, or visitors, that may offend anyone, no matter how ludicrous the claim of offense is, and in disregard of the truism that exposure to offensive and contrary ideas and learning how to confront and respond to them should be part of education, 
It's no wonder that our voters, ages 18 to 29, seem so willing to align themselves with more progressive and extreme left candidates and ideas. It is what they have been taught is the position on the side of justice. Take simple instruction on writing. Learning to communicate effectively in writing is a key part of literacy. Yet, in a course taught at the City University of New York on writing composition, the course description includes that students will practice using the strategies social activists use in documents that further the causes of social justice. Huh? Shouldn't learning to write simply be the learning of a skill to be able to put into written words what you mean and to do so clearly and effectively, no matter the topic or style? And here are some truly worthwhile college courses included in a list published by Young America's Foundation for which you're likely to be defaulted student loan payments could be used. That is, if the goal is not education or a job, but indoctrination and self-congratulation. You could sign up for diversity and design at the University of Arkansas, in which course students will learn how race, gender, religion, and the like affects the design of everything from consumer products to architecture. Or black hair politics or gender and food politics could be a student's preference at the University of Florida. If attending the University of South Carolina, perhaps tuition dollars could be spent on ecofeminism, a course that will explore links between the oppression of women and the oppression of nature. Or racial capitalism, environmental justice, or just a course on white people sure sound like the building blocks of a solid education. No doubt, for today's college students, the indoctrination is already near complete by the time they are selecting courses on their own. But as we turn our focus to K-12 curricula, policies, and control, it's also time to look at these higher learning institutions and to question whether a four-year degree may do more harm than good from a societal perspective if these added years are just further indoctrination into the kinds of philosophies that will only doom our freedom. Of course, there are good courses, good colleges, good professors, good teachers, good students, but there can also be no doubt that the left, particularly the extreme left, which is more and more of them, has co-opted these channels to further its own agenda and not for reasons of political good. But it is hard to counter a child's early teachings. A teachings that are very existent is an abomination. And no holiday likely highlights more the real battle going on in today's schools than the way we are now teaching about Thanksgiving. Sure. Schools and teachers still willingly enjoy extra days off to spend with friends and family, overeating, shopping, and otherwise partaking of all the riches offered by our free capitalist system. But ask what students may be taught about the Thanksgiving celebration, and you'll find many now view it as an oppressor's holiday. Let's start with how the holiday even came about. Those aboard the famous ship the Mayflower from Plymouth, England, did not have it easy once arriving on the shores of the North American continent, those who even made it here looking for a place they could freely practice their religion and have the right of land ownership, that trip in 1620 was long and dangerous. Landing near what is now Cape Cod and establishing what we now know as the village of Plymouth, many of them lost their lives, if not on the trip from England, aboard the ship, where most of them stayed through that first winter. When spring came, those left, only about half of the original aboard, made their way on land. It was through a visit from an English-speaking Native American of the Abenaki tribe and the introduction by that individual to a member of another tribe, the Patuxic Indians, a man named Squanto, that the settlers learned of ways to survive, including ways to treat episodes of illness and malnutrition, how to find and plant food and medicine sources in this new land. The introduction to these Indians led to further cooperation with another tribe, the Wampanoag, 
and it is the continued friendship between the Plymouth Pilgrims and the members of the Wampanoag that resulted in what is now viewed as the first Thanksgiving. Seeking to celebrate and thank those who had taught them how to survive, including the planting and harvesting of that first crop of corn, in the fall of 1621, the governor of Massachusetts, William Bradford, invited those friends for a celebratory festival that lasted several days, the first Thanksgiving. This celebration would again take place in 1623, after a difficult couple of years, and other nearby settlements adopted a similar ritual of annual or nearly annual celebration. Though the celebration in Plymouth in 1621 is credited as the first Thanksgiving, there's some controversy whether there may have been similar earlier celebrations between European settlers and Indian tribes. But no doubt exists these celebrations were a giving of thanks for the good uh, benefits they had gotten and the help they had been provided, and the successes of these new settlements. In no way is this holiday intended, nor has it ever been that I can find, to cover up some of the less positive experiences of Native Americans or the settlers as the two civilizations clashed in the early years of European, uh, European arrival in this nation, what would become this nation. Thanksgiving was not even an official holiday until 1863, and for some time, critics claimed that what we taught our elementary school children about this holiday was too rosy a picture of the relationship between the tribes and the settlers. But what exactly would one want to teach a nine-year-old? As with any part of education, simpler concepts are taught until the student is mature enough to learn more of the complexities of any subject. Today, however, the pendulum has swung way too far the other direction. In the current climate of America, America is bad, everyone else is good. Students are now confronted, often at inappropriate levels in terms of their ages, with what some refer to as the actual history, but which itself is tainted by its own bias. Organizations like learningforjustice.org provide materials that are right in line with those provided by Pollyanna on racial issues. At times, the lessons suggested are likely at least worth discussion. There is a proper balance between glorifying the pilgrims and treating Native Americans with some respect. But where we are now is far beyond that respect for the complexities in an age-appropriate way, especially in our elementary schools. In the nation's second-largest school district, for example, the Los Angeles Unified School District, the peaceful sharing of celebration that did occur between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag tribe is ignored and replaced with only discussion of the aggression and oppression of the Native Americans by the Pilgrims generally. No matter your views on who la- whose land this was, no honest dispute can exist that atrocities were committed by both sides, the European settlers and Native Americans. There are even claims by one unnamed authority that it should be doubted this celebration in 1621 even occurred, despite evidence of it, and at the time, a penned entry by someone who was actually there. The teachings in this district, because they don't want to see it as positive, actually conclude with a video produced by Teen Vogue, a source I did not realize had any claims to expertise on American history, in which the story of Thanksgiving is told by a bunch of Native American teenage girls and is summed up this way. After every killing of a whole village, these European settlers celebrated it and then called it Thanksgiving meaning that if you celebrate this holiday, you are celebrating the deaths of many people. Of course, this video was the filming of the opinions of Native American teenage girls and provides no factual basis for their beliefs or feelings, but it is what they have been told they should feel. And the fact that similar celebrations took place in other places throughout New England is completely ignored, that Indians participated in them completely ignored, the particular school district teaching this drivel to students then proposed replacing Thanksgiving with a national day of mourning.
No wonder so many young people do not understand, appreciate, or see the importance of saving America and American ideals. For we are not only built on a history and bedrock of racism and white supremacy, apparently we are simply murderers, and Thanksgiving apparently just lives in our imagination. It is true that a more thorough history can be taught as children get older and can appreciate the nuances of it. But to wipe out Thanksgiving, to characterize one side of this historical period as bad, and it be the side that created our nation, is what's harming our children. And it's going to harm America if we don't stop it. As always, thank you for listening. Schools are the key. Education always brings with it an element of indoctrination. When education was primarily something that took place in the home, the beliefs and educational skills of older family members surely dictated what was taught. When a person teaches a subject, that person cannot help but come with his or her own beliefs, and hiding those biases can be challenging. It can be all too easy for parents and other family members to make the dangerous assumption that since schools are operated by professional educators, the students being taught must be receiving a quality education. And it can be a mistake to believe that open discussion of ideas actually permeates modern education. Parents and community members need to pay more attention to what is taught, why it is taught, and who is behind its being taught when looking at the curriculum of any school, school district, or state. Investigation into the real motivations behind so many of these allegedly nonprofit organizations who are all too willing to provide course materials, training, and other resources is necessary to determine what they're really driving at. What are they really trying to teach our children? Alexis de Tocqueville knew. The will of the nation is one of those phrases most widely abused by schemers and tyrants of all ages. Where those want-to-be and would-be tyrants can permeate our educational system, they can create a perceived but false and ignorant will of a nation. You see, it's our children, stupid, and if we want to save them, the time is now. Next episode, I will dive more deeply into the ills of socialism and communism. As we now face further claims that the election results show a growing consensus for adoption of more of these systems in our own society, it's important to know what the end result is when government dictates more and where those who produce pay for those who do not. Margaret Thatcher's warning about the certain ends of socialism is worth repeating now in anticipation of the next episode. And here's just one of the things she had to say about this very, very poorly, poorly crafted doctrine. There is no such thing as safe socialism. If it's safe, it is not socialism. If it's socialism, it's not safe. The signposts of socialism point downhill to less freedom, less prosperity, downhill to more muddle, more failure. If we follow them to their destination, they will lead us into bankruptcy. Real-world economics simply does not allow a nation to provide for all of its citizens' needs. To work, an economy must have workers willing to toil for their own gain and to use that gain for their own care. The community should provide a mere safety net for those situations of unexpected turmoil, and life itself is not such an unexpected turmoil. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further the entire purpose for it. 
to encourage real discourse in society about the state of our nation in a way that is open to all ideas. For it is a marketplace of ideas where we can bat them around, work them through, and figure out what's best that is truly where America protects her freedom. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solace Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2022.